Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, honey, you know your dad's world-famous chili. Yeah, the one that takes 24 hours to make. So I was trying to help out and bring the pot to the table, but it was like super hot. And then I um dropped it. And now the floor looks all, you know, stained with chili. Look, the point is, you guys cool with pizza for dinner? <laughs> Honey? Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. You might be under the impression that allergies are on the rise. It's very common now for certain foods to be banned from school cafeterias or for people to talk about how they're having an intolerance or an allergy to a specific food or type of plant. And it does seem that in in an era in which we're so sensitive to any kind of respiratory symptoms that understanding what's an allergy and what's a cold is becoming more and more important. And if you have noticed this upward trend, you're not wrong. So what is it about our current world that is making us more prone to suffer from allergies? To help us answer that question, we're going to talk to Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist, former journalist, and associate professor of science and technology studies who researches and writes about global health. And she's recently written a book called Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. Teresa McPhail, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, great being here. So I have to admit that it's been challenging for me to to sit down and motivate to read your book. And that's because I recently spoke to Alden Wicker, who talks about toxic fashion, about how, you know, our clothes are, are killing us. I have kids who have asthma and allergies. And like, it just feels so overwhelming to think that there are things in our environment that are literally harming us in ways that, I don't know, like, a, you know, as, <laughs> as a parent or as a person, it, it just, I just want to go hide under a rug um, <laughs> where there's probably lots of dust mites and it's going to make me sneeze, right? <laughs> yeah, but I, I completely understand. And I was highly aware when I was writing the book that I wanted everybody to have the facts and I wanted to lay out the complexity of what is happening. But I was also highly aware that a lot of what I'm saying can sound depressing and that I the, I wanted to leave room for hope and for positive changes. But it is really such a big issue and there's so many different factors at play that we're going to really have to make some hard choices and make some hard decisions to really wrangle with this problem. Well, it's good to know that there's something that we can do, and I want to get to that. But first, I want to understand kind of the lay of the land. So can you tell us about what seems to me like a rise in allergies? I mean, it, it, it feels as though like, you know, my, my kid, one of my kids has a peanut allergy. That seemed really rare when I was growing up. And now it seems like 
actually pretty common. Doesn't doesn't seem to run in our families, but here it is. Um, and all these other kind of allergies seem to you just seem to hear about them a lot more. Are we simply more aware of them, or has there been an increase in the absolute number of people suffering from allergies? It's both. There's definitely been an increase, but then there's also definitely been an increase in awareness, which of course leads to more people thinking about allergies, going in to see an allergist or talking to their general physician about allergies. But we know that they've been on the rise likely for the last 200 years. So it kind of tracks with the industrial revolution, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But the big spikes came post-World War II. So right after World War II, of course, a ton of things are changing about our lifestyles. It's not coincidental that that's also when we start to get antibiotics in the general population. We're changing our diet, right? The way that we're manufacturing food starts to change, the way we consume food. And that's around the time period that we start eating a lot more meat, a lot more processed foods. Our habits change. We start being more of an urban country and less of a rural country. So you're getting people moving into city centers. So you're getting all of this. And at the same time, around the 1950s and 60s, we see a huge spike in respiratory allergies and asthma. And the way we know this is there were a lot more visits to the ER in that time period, a lot more uh, prescriptions for things related to asthma, a lot more diagnoses of asthma in clinics. And once that stabilized, it started to stabilize around the 1980s. So the rates stopped going up and kind of plateaued. And then we really started to see more eczema, especially in younger children, and in lockstep with that, more um, food allergies. So the food allergy spike really started in the late 1980s and 1990s. And by the 2000s, we were in full-fledged food allergy. And you can still see those rates are growing. So... You can tend to see that this happening also in other places. So when you industrialize and when you get richer, so when you move into a different socioeconomic status as a country, you tend to move into the allergic category. So places like India, once they started modernizing, they started to have a huge spike in asthma. That started to plateau and they are just now starting to get food allergy, and something similar happened and is happening in China. So you can kind of see it happening with them in real time. Before we get into understanding where, what, where this association comes from, I think, I think we need to understand like what it is that is caught like physically what, what's happening when a person is having an allergic reaction. So can you tell us a little bit about the physiology behind allergies? What's really going on in our bodies that's causing this reaction? So most of us have heard that our immune systems are set up for defense. So you often hear people talking about, oh, it's the policemen of our body. You know, these immune cells are circulating throughout our system and their their job is to kind of spot foreigners and then attack them. And that's kind of true, except with allergies, that's not exactly what's happening. So I like to tell people that it is true that our T cells are those police officers. And they're, they are roaming through our body. And when they come across something that they think is suspicious or they don't like, they kind of take a snapshot of it, like a, a snapshot of the protein signature, basically, or like a, a fingerprint. And then they go to the B cells, which I like to think of as the nightclub managers on the street. And they say, listen, we've got this perp. Take a look. 
memorize this. And if you see this person, definitely alert all of us because this guy's got to go. And the B cells produce things called antibodies. In the case of allergies, it's most often associated with this class of antibodies called IgE. And think of IgE like bouncers. So they are there at the door, at the entrance to different parts of your body. And what they're doing is they're scanning the crowd, but only for that one perp. And if you like to think of it as there are 50 of them or a hundred of them at the entrance, and they're all just looking for one thing. And the problem with that is, like, say they've been told, oh, this guy's 6'2", he's got brown hair and blue eyes. Well, there are a lot of things that look like that. So in the case of allergies, it would be like a tree nut. You're allergic to one, but they all kind of look similar because they're in the same protein family. So another one might get tossed out just because he looks similar. So you might have a reaction to multiple things in the same class of family. So you could, same type of tree. Like if you're allergic to one elm, you're probably allergic to all the varieties of elm just because of that similarity. And once the bouncer gets in motion, it sets in all of this mechanism. They basically turn on the immune system and release certain chemical signals that start a whole process, which ends to you being having highs, having mucus, having itchy eyes, and in upset tummy, or in the not being able to breathe, and worst case scenario, going into full-on anaphylactic shock and ending up in the ER. Do we know, like, it, it, that seems so maladaptive, you know? Right. That, so, <laughs> wh- wh- like, how did this come about? Well, I mean, it does seem maladaptive, doesn't it? Because if you know anything about evolution, the whole theory is that we conserve parts of our DNA that have some sort of survival benefit. So over time, your DNA is going to be very conservative and try to keep the parts that make it easier to propagate the species. So it's going to keep you alive and therefore keep the whole species alive. And so, yeah, why would we eat a peanut and die. That doesn't make any sense. And so I went to Stanford and and talked to a researcher there who has been puzzled by this. And it turns out components of the immune system are really old. So there's really two different systems that overlap, but are distinct. There's the innate immune system, and that comes online at birth. And so that's first-line responders like mast cells, which are going to be important in a second, and basophils, And just like the first responders of the immune system and of obviously killer T cells, macrophages, like all of that stuff, it responds the same way to any threat. So it is nonspecific. Anything it comes into contact with, it will turn on and it's the same mechanism. What we're going to focus on mostly with allergies is the second system, which is called the adaptive immune system. And it's called the adaptive immune system because it remembers things. So it has the bouncers. (laughs) It has the B cells. It has the antibodies. And they remember, memory T cells will remember what they have come into contact with before. And then every time they come into contact with that thing subsequently, they respond strong, more strongly. So it intensifies the reaction. 
And so the question really is, why would we have developed is something that could potentially inflict harm on us. So like the mast cells are 500 million years old. So why in the world would they have the capacity to turn on and conduct a, a whole series of events that ends up killing us? And what researchers at Stanford kind of guessed is that, well, there must have been some protection involved at some point. And so they sat down and thought, all right, Thousands of years ago, maybe tens of thousands of years ago, what would early humans or humanoids, what would they have come into contact with that this could have been protective against? And their guess was it must have been something that was so serious that it would alert your body that you needed to get out of there immediately. And it was like a major threat. And so they thought, well, venomous insects and snakes. Anything that can, I mean, it doesn't happen too often to you I don't, I, or me, like we're not getting stung or that much or we're not getting bit by poisonous snakes. But around the world, there's still a lot of venomous snake bites and there's still a lot of venomous insects and we do come into contact with them. So their theory was maybe this system helps us deal with that. So... One of the researchers, um, so they thought, okay, we need to find something that early humans would have been involved with, would have been interacting with. And they thought, well, you got to go to the Fertile Crescent. So they found a species of uh, snake that really is just in Israel. And they thought, this is a good place to start. So they flew to Israel, got a sample of the venom and tested in mice. So what they did was they tested in mice that had IgE, so they had those bouncers, and they tested in mice that they had knocked out, genetically speaking, they had knocked out the IgE in those mice. And what they ended up finding was that the mice with the IgE could handle lower levels and repeated doses of the toxin and recover. So some of them would still die, but a lot more of them would not but in the mice that had IgE knocked out, they were much more likely to succumb to the very first dose. So they were just dying at higher numbers. And so that kind of was, for them, evidence that they were right. So we conserve this partially because it does seem to have a protective effect if all other things are going well. So, oh, that's so interesting. And with my dad, interestingly enough, one of the reasons he died is because he was sitting up. And so, one of the things that happens in anaphylaxis is your histamine. It's basically all histamine. So, mast cells respond to a threat. So, the bee stung him in the neck, and his skin cells, his mast cells in his skin were like, this is terrible. So they send out histamine, and histamine does two things. One, it signals to other cells that something is up, and they should also turn on histamine. And then two, what histamine does in the body is it increases mucus production. It, so that's what makes us stuffy. It swells tissues, so you get swollen. It creates hives and itchy, so that's why your skin starts to change and you feel itchy. It can constrict the muscles around your lungs, which is why people with asthma find it difficult to take breaths 
because their lungs are being constricted and it can open the blood vessels, which can crash your blood pressure. So the researcher at Stanford actually told me if my dad, and here's just a tip for everybody, if you're ever going to anaphylaxis, you lie flat because that way your body can cope with the dramatic crash in blood pressure and that the mast cells and this immune response might actually still be protective in that event because it's slowing down blood flow. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're bit on the ankle, you definitely don't want that toxin to get around your body quickly. So you can kind of see how that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the other things that we're seeing, it seems, though, is um, an increase not only in the, these severe allergies, uh, but also in like sensitivities and, and you know, people saying that they're intolerant. I, I wonder if you could tell us about the difference between an allergy, like with a capital A, and a sensitivity or an intolerance. People say, say that I'm lactose intolerant. Like, what is that all the same thing? What does it mean? No, not at all. And in fact, the I spent about three years just researching this book before I even started to write it. And every single allergist and immunologist I talked to, I would say, what is the biggest misconception about allergy? And they all said, no one knows what an allergy really is. (laughs) And would you please help us? (laughs) So here I am. I'm going to do my best. So An allergy is only when that immune mechanism turns on. So your mast cells, your IgE cells, they're turning on and they are starting this biological process and that is an allergy. But intolerance is an interesting one because intolerance is something else in the body. It's not your immune system. It's some other system turning on or or struggling. So in the case of like milk allergy, which is the perfect example, someone with milk intolerance just doesn't have enough of the enzyme that breaks down milk protein. So they feel gross when they drink or eat anything with milk in it. They they get an upset stomach. It can feel very uncomfortable. The weird thing is, is someone with a milk allergy might have similar symptoms. And that's where it gets tricky is because if you don't know what's going on with you, it can feel the same, especially if it's a mild food allergy. It might just be an upset stomach. And yet what is happening is that IgE has recognized the milk protein and has turned on those mechanisms I was talking about before. So that is the key difference. And it can be kind of hard to understand which one you're going through if you don't see an allergist and kind of confirm and get some tests because they'll do a blood test uh, for the IgE activation, and they can kind of see after you have ingested something if you're responding. And that can kind of help people sort that stuff out because one of the dangers is if you think you have an allergy, you might be avoiding the food. And that can be really difficult because you might be not getting enough nutrients. And this is especially tricky in kids. So, you know, if parents are self-diagnosing a, an, an allergy in a child, that's really dangerous. And it can just throw off your immune system. So ironically, if you deprive your immune system of the protein for long enough, you could accidentally trigger a sensitivity. Does that make sense? Like your body has tolerated it, but then if you if suddenly it doesn't see it for five years and then it sees it again, you could have accidentally 
created your own allergy, which I find just mind blowing, right? Yeah, no, I mean, this is like, so, you know, my son has a peanut allergy, my daughter doesn't. And so we've been feeding her peanut stuff when he's not around um, to, yeah, to prevent her from developing that allergy. Okay. But there is a fear that like, you know, sometimes it go there's a while that goes between peanut um exposure to her because we don't keep peanuts in the house you know right because of, of my not. son so <laughs> anyway it's like yeah I, I yeah that's 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 a very practical consequence of, of yeah. what we're trying to avoid here and the sensitivity is really tricky so that's where we start getting into the scientific weeds let's do um, it we like yeah. the weeds here <laughs> <laughs> it's really tricky so when you go to get an allergy test like so you're having symptoms you're gonna probably the first thing that they do is they're going to give you a skin panel test. So they're going to either on your arm or your upper back is usually where they do it. And what they're doing is that they're putting a trace trace amount of allergens underneath your skin to see if those mast cells or other immune cells in your skin respond to this thing and produce histamine. Because that is what you're seeing. So histamine is the reaction when you get a mosquito bite, it's histamine reaction. So it's the similar thing. They look like a little mosquito bites. They'll be little wheels if you're you're positive. But, and here's where it gets tricky. That doesn't mean you have an allergy. What it means is you have a sensitivity. It's only an allergy if your immune system kicks in when you encounter that thing naturally. So if you think about it, that's a very artificial way to be introduced to anything. We don't go around injecting ourselves Mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully with substances mm-hmm. like grass. So what it's really telling an allergist is if there is a predisposition to perhaps responding in real time. But I have to underline that those tests can be 50% false positive rate. What? So with that, yeah, it's really high. So say you get a wheel, like say to grass, and the wheel is clear on your skin and then you're like, but I mow my lawn every Saturday and I've never had a problem. Well, that's because you have a sensitization to grass, but not an allergy. So when your body comes into contact with it, it's tolerating it just fine, but it's not tolerating it being injected into your arm. (laughs) Mm, Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's kind of a clue, but think of an allergist as a professional detective. Like, you, it's really hard to read those tests with any accuracy. And I should say they are terrible for food allergies. They are not predictive of food allergies. It's much better to have a blood test, which is basically just taking your blood, adding the allergen to your blood, and then watching to see if IgE activates. And that is much more predictive. But it's really important to get to an allergist because I mean, the other fun fact about allergy diagnosis is most people will probably see their physician and their physician has only had two weeks of training on allergy in medical school. And so often they don't know how to interpret those tests either. They will say, oh, that's evidence of an allergy. It's not. And so the allergists I talked to were like, can you please get that message out? Because often doctors are going to be diagnosing wrong as well, simply because they don't have the decades of experience interpreting these results that allergists do, who have spent, you know, way more time in medical school on this subject. So can be tricky.
Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Even the IgE numbers, like, aren't directly correlated. I remember, like, there was something like, yeah, you might have a small number but have a big reaction or a big number and a small reaction, and, yeah, it's all very hard to navigate. Um, yeah, and that's the same for the – so I often would see people on Reddit posting their skin. They would – you know, and some of them would be really big welts, and they'd say, look at how allergic I am to this. Well, one, that's not an allergy, but two – the size of the wheel has nothing to do with the severity of your reaction. So you could have a huge wheel, but only have a mild sniffle. It doesn't real, or have a small wheel and have a sneezing fit that lasts for 30 minutes. Like it's not predictive of how severe the reaction is going to be. So it is really complicated, really fast. And it can take people sometimes years to get a correct diagnosis. Well, I want to eventually get to some of the, you know, new treatments like OIT and, and et cetera, and sort of the mechanism there. But I first want to get back to this association with industrialization, because I think that will also help us understand it a little bit better. So why, why is it? Do we know that, you know, living in a more industrialized society or more wealthy society is, is associated with this increase in allergies? I'll walk you through the the top theories. So there are, and it's probably when I would ask all the experts to tell me, you know, what's the smoking gun here? Can you tell me what one thing we're doing? And they all refused to do that and then said to me, it's everything. And I said, well, oh my God, that's so overwhelming, but it kind of is. So the first thing we should talk about is the hygiene hypothesis. So if you've heard of that, you've probably heard that we're too clean. We don't let our kids play in the dirt enough. Yeah, um, I, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. They're very dirty, my kids. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. But the idea was, so a researcher in the UK kind of noticed, he did a meta study and noticed that if people lived in a large family, the younger siblings tended to get sick more often when they were younger and that seemed to have a protective effect when they got older. So older children were more likely to get allergies than younger children were. And the hypothesis was is it was because they were getting exposed to more things via their older siblings. And that tends to be supported partially 
So if you look at studies out of, say, Switzerland and Germany, which is the key studies that support the hygiene hypothesis and the farmhouse effect. So they, they looked at people living on farms in Germany and Switzerland and having children and carrying them in and out of barns. So, and specifically the barns had to have livestock. So do- dogs, cats, ducks, pigs, cattle, horses, it didn't matter. There just had to be a lot of animals in the barn. And what they found was that if the baby was exposed early, so from age zero to age three, then that seemed to have a protective effect. Their rates of allergy are so much lower than the general population. And so there's something magical about farm dust that, and they don't really know what it is. Is it bacteria? Is it bacteria plus the allergens in the air? So there are a lot of allergens in barns like hay, effluvia, and all that kind of stuff. Or is it uh, the animal dander? Like, so what's going on there? And they think it's kind of the admixture is training the early immune system on a wide variety of things so that it doesn't react later on. It's, it's, all, it's learned to tolerate a wider array of things So its set point is tolerance, not turning on those systems I talked about earlier. Um, That it's not a per, why isn't it the smoking gun? I'm making it sound like it's the smoking gun. Well, because people in Uganda have a lot of kids and they still live in farming communities. But when we look at their rates of allergic disease, they're on the rise. And so it can't be just that that is driving the increase. The second theory is that we've changed our gut microbiome and our skin microbiomes and our nasal microbiomes. And that is twofold. It's one, it's antibiotics. So like I said, after World War II, that's when we start seeing penicillin, amoxicillin, like people are getting prescribed regularly. And you see changes in the gut microbiome because antibiotics are like a sledgehammer. They're just going to kill everything. And it turns out some of the things in our gut are necessary and good. They're good bacteria. And so we've dramatically altered via antibiotics, but also our diets. So as when we started, the population started increasing, we started actually feeding different things to animals. So animals, interesting, fun fact, they used to be fed on vegetables and things like that. But then there was just too much need for them. So we started switching to things like hay. And so we started planting hay, which then created hay fever. (laughs) There is a reason it's called hay fever. And so we then we changed our eating patterns just because there were so many of us. So We started eating more manufactured foods, obviously, post-World War II, but we have been changing our diet slowly for the past 200 years. So the argument is we don't eat enough fiber, like 90% of Americans aren't getting enough fiber. And so we're starving the good bacteria and we're overfeeding the bacteria that eat fats and sugars. So we're getting a lot of that and we're not getting any of the fiber that we need. And so we've totally messed with the composition of our gut microbiome. And we're only starting to realize what kind of consequences that has. But they think that one of the consequences is 
it's it is modulating our immune system. And so without those good bacteria, our immune system kind of goes haywire. All right. So let's talk about what we can do about it, um, since that's, you know, a, a, a big component, too, of, of your book. And, and um, let, we can maybe we can start with some of these treatments that are coming that seem to be relatively new um, about how to help people with allergies deal with them. And then just generally what we should be doing in our lifestyle. This is where I always feel the worst, because the treatments <laughs> haven't changed much in 200 years. <laughs> oh, come on. What about the patch and the OIT? No, just the... recently, just recently, <laughs> literally in the last decade, we've started to see some improvement. But until recently, it was very similar. The number one treatment is avoidance still to this day. So they'll tell you if you can avoid your trigger, then that's the best therapy. So, But obviously, if you have an oak pollen allergy, good luck. <laughs> you're not really going to be able to do that. And poor people who have eczema often don't even know what their trigger is. It's very hard for um, some people to, uh, to know what the trigger is. So the idea that they can avoid it, it doesn't even make sense. So the first line of treatment for most people with respiratory allergies is histamine. I Antihistamine, sorry. At which you know, right? We're all taking Zyrtec or Allegra or whatever, whatever we're taking. And again, those drugs are meant to tamp down the histamine response I was talking about earlier, which is why they work. But those drugs haven't, they're new generation drugs for antihistamines, so they are less drying. So like Benadryl is an old generation drug, which is why you feel tired, but it really clears up your sinuses. The side effect is you feel like you're going to fall asleep. Um, and everything else dries out. The newer drugs don't dry you out as much, but a lot of people with really bad hay fever actually prefer the older drugs because it doesn't work on congestion. So that is the problem with antihistamines is that they aren't great at symptom resolution for most of us, which is why I often hear people telling me they've switched antihistamines like seven times in hopes that they're going to find the magic one that really helps them. Um, for people who have asthma, it's beta agonists. So it's trying to kind of prevent the bad effects of a reaction and inhaled steroids when you're having an attack to tamp down the attack. They work reasonably well, but they're not great. I mean, they don't like even inhaled steroids. They don't like to overuse them. They have a whole host of side effects that um, no one likes. So those are good, but they're not, again, they're not perfect. So um, for eczema, that has traditionally been the worst one to treat. And it's also one of the worst ones to live with. So your skin is is raw and itchy. You're scratching at it all the time. Sometimes there's pus that forms because you're open, you know, you're scratching so much it bleeds. It's just a really terrible um, condition to have. And for a long time, it was emollient. So they would first try to protect the barrier, the skin barrier, with just moisturizers, special moisturizers. And then steroids, topical steroids, so to try to tamp down the immune system. But again, steroids are like antibiotics in that they're a sledgehammer. They're just 
turning off your immune system full stop, which is not something you want because a lot of people using topical steroids will get secondary skin infections, so bacteria infections or fungal infections, because their immune cells are being told not to work. So it does work, but there's a rebound effect. They can't take them forever because they're it thins the skin. Um, it can cause it can seep into the system and cause all kinds of problems. So you can't take them forever. And once you get off them, often your eczema comes back and is worse. So it's called the rebound effect. And patients are really scared of that. So they're in like a love hate relationship with steroids until recently. And of course, with food until very recently, the only thing you could do was avoid or Immunotherapy, and we'll talk about the new one, it's really an old therapy. It's just the, the new OIT, so palforzia for the nut allergy, peanut only, it's basically just a standardized amount. So before you would go to your allergist, your allergist would have a bag of peanut protein and would mix your immunotherapy dose by hand. And of course, that is prone to mistakes and... So the new drug is standardized and there is no room for mistakes. So that makes people feel a lot more comfortable. And so more people have been going through immunotherapy, which is just ingesting a small, small, small amount of the allergen and training your immune system to tolerate it over time. So every week you'll get a little more and a little more. And the goal is to be able to eat uh, up to two peanuts without ending up in the ER. So typically, they only do it for very severe patients that are under risk, and it, unfortunately, it doesn't work for everyone. Some people respond really well to immunotherapy. Some people don't, and it has to be maintained. So you have to maintain a dosage for life, or your immune system might revert back to being very responsive to that thing again. So those are the old treatments, and the new treatments are biologics. So they are more targeted drugs. So they're not sledgehammers. They're trying to affect one pathway in all of the possible choices your immune cells are making. And they are showing great promise, but they all have kind of scary side effects. Hmm. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> because it's, it's tricky because the treatment for allergies is turning off part of your immune response. And that we don't want to do that, right? I mean, that's a tricky proposition. You're really between a rock and a hard place. And so the, the some of the biologics, one is Dupixent, which they're treating eczema and asthma, and it just basically disrupts that pathway that produces the histamine response in the first place. It's really fantastic. It works, but it only works for about 75% of people, 25% of people for whatever reason, probably because it's not the same pathway that's driving their response. They don't respond at all. And for the people who take it, you have to take it continually. So you're on it indefinitely. And it can cause increased risk of conjunctivitis and sometimes secondary infections, although the rates of those are a bit lower. And JAK inhibitors are the other big one. And they work in a different way, but they are also showing great promise. But those are tricky because they have what's known as an FDA black box warning, which means they have serious side effects like 
could potentially cause cancer side effects. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they really turn off the immune system. I mean, they really damp down the immune function, which is why they're so effective. There's no, I mean, there's an oral version and a topical version. Right now for allergies, the only thing being used is the topical version for eczema and for severe eczema. And there's, you know, there's not as much data that that's going to be cancerous as the oral version, but it is still a black box warning. So that leaves patients in the position of like, okay, this drug is going to make me feel much better. Am I comfortable with these risks? And that can be really tricky to decide. Most of the patients I spoke with, I mean, it's just such a terrible condition that they were like, you'll pry this out of my cold, dead hands. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's such a miracle drug for the people it works for. These drugs really work. And like I said, there's been nothing except steroids until the last five years. Well, hopefully, you know, as precision medicine becomes, personalized medicine becomes more mainstream and, and you know, we sort of overhaul the way that drugs are, are discovered and created, that that would be a, a good direction. Um, I want to remind our listeners that Teresa McPhail's book, Allergic or Irritated Bodies in a Changing World, is available now at booksellers everywhere. And I wonder if you could leave us with some hopefully optimistic notes of what we can do. Like, do you see places in society you know, I might say that, you know, we're starting to understand, for example, the health consequences of eating too much red meat. And, you know, people are starting to think about, you know, reducing their meat consumption, um, etc. Like, where do you see the avenues of hope uh, in terms of reducing this problem? I actually think it's really empowering to understand that your immune cells are in, well, first of all, that there are good bacteria, good fungi, and some there's some indication that even some of the viruses are helping us. So I think it's it's really beneficial to understand that and to kind of see yourself as a confederation. Like you're not human. You're human plus. <laughs> and that changes the way you are in the world. Like for me, I really took my research and changed my idea about Like I'm making decisions for me and the bacteria, viruses, and fungi that are on me and in me. And that I understand that my cells and those cells are in a constant conversation. So I just try to make life easier on them. They're irritated because they're overwhelmed. So they don't have all of those normal things in the world that they were used to for hundreds of thousands of years. So I really just try to keep in mind that I am in a constant conversation with my surroundings and I try to make decisions that are not just good for me, but are good for all of the things in me and on me. So I have changed uh, a few habits. So I eat differently to try to support my gut microbiome. So I'm definitely trying to get more green things inside of me, more fruit and veg, more fiber, um, less processed foods. I try to be careful about what I put on my skin. So, you know, obviously, I don't know if people are aware of this, but there are actually 85,000 different chemicals on the EPA's Toxic Substances Control Act watch list. 85,000. 
And so I just try to remind myself that my our immune systems are so old. It's like we're running Windows 95 in a 2023 world, but the, we can't upgrade. Like there's no possibility yeah. <laughs> for an upgrade. What can we do on a society level? I mean, we can advocate for things like clean air. I mean, we're right in the middle of wildfires here in New York City right now. So that's a factor. Um, so people thinking about climate stuff is great. We can do simple things like advocating in our communities. Like we've mostly planted male trees for years, which produce pollen because they're cleaner than female trees, which have the seed pods. And so they drop a lot more detritus. And so we can like maybe think about what we're planting and how and what kind of pollen loads are in the air. And we can just learn, I think, the biggest lesson from this book is that climate change and the things we've done to our environment aren't going to affect us 50 years from now. They're affecting us now and have been affecting us for the last 70 years. And so people with allergies are really the canaries in the climate change coal mine. And they are just having their biology is getting more upset. But, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I don't have allergies, I would say yet. <laughs> so I don't know if that's I find it hopeful to at least understand that we are in a conversation with the world. We're not separate from it. We really are really intimately connected to the things around us. And I think just knowing that means we can start to make different choices. At least that's my hope. Well, Teresa McPhail, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kai Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's cold K-cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.